Every project I begin gets more complex as I get into it. In fact, the further I go and, and, and I find out that, gee, I didn't foresee this. Why is it so much more hard, uh, more difficult than I had been able to, to expect? In fact, uh, my most recent one was to refinish uh, the stairs leading into our walkout basement. And I started with the first five because there's a door between those and the next ten. And I, I said, oh, this will take a half hour maybe. And uh, it didn't work out that way. As I took off the 30-year-old carpet and, uh, and tried to see what was underneath, I realized that, oh my gosh, there's padding underneath. And that padding has been attached uh, to the stairs with a combination of glue and staples. Well, you can't refinish anything until the glue is gone and the staples are gone with it. And the staples have to be taken out not by magic, but one by one. So I find a tool that does that, uh, basically one of Barb's best knives. And as I'm taking them out one by one, I realize not just that there's five stairs, but there's probably ten more on the, on the rest of the landing on the way up. So I just do those five. But it gets worse than that because I take out the padding and I realize that they had painted... The room originally, you know, over 40 years ago, and, and were prepared, knew they were going to put carpet over it, so they painted, and they didn't care what happened to the stairs. More than that, they didn't care what happened to the drywall mud. They didn't care what happened to the, all the sawdust and everything else that was already on there. They didn't bother, uh, cleaning it up. It was just one big glob of another of junk covered with nice, fresh paint. And it got more and more complex. You know, uh, I have direct access on my cell phone to my plumber, to my electrician, to my mechanic, to a contractor, and to a landscaper. And every time I talk to them, I show them the project, and I usually say, I can do this myself, can I? And they crack a smile. They crack a smile saying, sure you can, Jim. And I just want you to know that my quote will be double when you call me next time. Because because you probably will get started and find out it's not as easy as you thought. Well, a lot of things in life get more complex. For you, maybe it's auto maintenance or oven cleaning. I leave. I don't do that. Uh, stains in your clothing. Uh, it all seemed easy to begin with. You even went on YouTube to look at you know at an instructional video, but once you got into it, you found it was a killer. Let me talk about another killer. Pack of cigarettes, Marlboro. Uh, I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes for 60 years. Uh, <clears throat> the price has gone up. Uh, more than that, so has the warning on the label. They've, they've sort of added to it. But, uh, and, and this is a funny story because it happened just yesterday. I figured, how can I talk about things getting more complicated? Well, this came to mind. So I went to a local convenience store and I forgot how to ask. So I, I said, uh, a packet of cigarettes, please. And they had a whole thing in back of them. I didn't even know it was there. And I said, how much do they cost these days? And, oh, my gosh. I didn't even know, I didn't know I had to take out a second mortgage to get it. Uh, and, and, and more than that, you know, what brand? And so I said, mm, Marlboro, okay, because I'm a Marlboro man. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I got those, and, and I picked them up and walked out. And as I walked out, everybody in line, and the line had to 
triple after I came in. Everybody in line was watching me hold these as I walked out. I could be in a liquor store and you wouldn't care. But today, you walk out with a pack of these, you are a sinner. (laughs) Well, on these, there is a warning that Congress passed. It is a law requiring that there be a warning on every pack of cigarettes. Now, it used to be warning. Uh, Surgeon General says cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. That was the original back in the 60s and 70s. You know what it says now? Surgeon General's warning. Smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate, complicate, make more complex pregnancy. Not for me. But for everybody, you know, for every woman who smokes, they want you to know this is dangerous and we're giving you a warning. It causes all these things. It's not may anymore. It does. And why do we, you know, why do people smoke? Well, they smoke because it calms them down. It's a nicotine delivery system. But we find out that it's more complex. What it does to your brain is only part of the story. What it does to your lungs and your heart makes smoking dangerous. Therefore, where cigarettes, you say you smoke them to ease your stress, understand they also kill your body. And there's a warning on them. I bring that up because I'm about ready to make the huge transition here. You got to follow me, all right? You got to follow me. We are in that part of studies of Ephesians where we continue to brag on God. We say that God's grace is blooming like a beautiful rose right before our eyes. But we also discover that God's grace has some side effects. God's grace uh, has some implications for us. And I want to make it clear that like cigarettes, God's grace should have a warning on it for us. If you receive God's grace, there's a warning. And it's this. Receiving God's grace could have some unforeseen and undesired side effects on your life. Receiving God's grace, this is St. Paul's warning, could have some undesired and unforeseen side effects on your life. And as he explains them, he just doesn't say, here's a laundry list, but he says, this is what happened to me. These are the side effects in my life. In other words, he's experienced just about every one that he lists. And what God's grace does to Paul, unfortunately, and you may not want to hear this, but God's grace is actually killing Paul, not physically, but the inner person. It is making such changes in his life that he's no longer the same. It kills him, though he is still alive. So we talk about saving grace. Today, this passage talks about killer grace. What does receiving God's grace do to you? To Paul, he would say it transformed his life. And for each of us, we will say God's grace transforms us. But before Paul turns his faith into Jesus... Understand that Paul had life pretty well figured out. Paul was a good Jew. Uh, more than that, he was a proud Jew. He was an elite Jew. And his goal to, was to be the very best Jew that he knew and a very influential Jew. And Judaism, you see, is where uh, we find the true God and people like Paul could explain the, the Jewish faith to other Jews so that uh, Paul and others would share his zeal for God in keeping his law. Well, 
Then comes Jesus into Paul's life, and it changes everything. This Jesus confronts Paul, blinds Paul, convinces Paul that Jesus is the Messiah for both the Jews and for all of humanity. And it's called a mystery. And so this first part of Killer Grace is understanding that there's been a mystery that maybe doesn't seem so mysterious to you now, but believe me, back then, everybody was, especially the Jews, were saying, it just cannot be done. There's no way that God could ever pull this off. It is so difficult, so impossible, that we don't even think God has it in mind. And we find it in Ephesians, as we get to uh, almost the halfway point here, in Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to just read this first verse before I get to the rest, because it says something. Now, in your uh, version, uh, hopefully it has the same thing. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash. The dash signifies, I'm going to get off track. Can you imagine that, a preacher getting off track? When does that, that never happens. He says, i got to get off track for a while, so I'll come back in about 12 verses, and I'll get back on track. But right now, I'm getting off track, and I'm getting off track on this. He says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. These are both Jews and non-Jews. And verse 3, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written to you briefly. He's already written about it, but now he's going to do a sidetrack because he says, this is so important for what I'm about to say, and if it's not clear, you won't share my joy and my, uh, you might say, the exaltation of God, and you won't be bragging on God like I'm about to brag on God if you don't know what this mystery was and how it was solved. So what people did not understand was that we had like two separate worlds. There was the Jewish world, which considered itself more holy, more righteous, more in tune with God than anybody else. And then there was the rest of the world, and they're called Gentiles. And God's promise has always been that he would bring the two together. But to bring the two together, he's got to do a lot of work on the Gentiles and just a little bit of work on the Jews. But he's got to, I mean, there has to be such drastic changes in them. And so it was a mystery because only God knew how he would do it through his son, Jesus. In fact, it even says later in this passage, not even the rest of heaven, all the heavenly beings, they considered it a mystery. No one on earth, no one in heaven knew what God was about to do or how he was going to do it. Nobody knew up in heaven that Jesus would die for the sins of the whole world and bring those who were not Jews through it into the kingdom of God and make one new kingdom of Jews and Gentiles together. This was the mystery that God knew but had not yet revealed. And that's what a mystery is. A secret that has been hidden but now revealed. And it had not yet been revealed to the Jews. You see, the Jewish Messiah to the Jews would bring, uh, would bring uh, a new kingdom, a new totally Jewish kingdom to the Jews. But God's plan is for Jesus the Messiah to bring Jews and, and the Greeks or the Gentiles together and make one new people out of them. So those titles, Jews and Gentiles, would drop. And may I say this? Christian, that term, was never really invented by God. It was invented by non-believers in a city called Antioch. And it stuck with us, and we're, you know, 
I'm okay with it. But the idea is not Christian and Jews. The idea was God was bringing together all of humanity into one new family. And all they had to do to enter that family was place their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, or as we say, the Savior. So bringing the two together was 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 the expectation and the plan. It's just that nobody else had grasped it yet. So Jews considered the Gentiles the unrighteous scum of the earth, and they would never mix with them. It would hurt their holiness. And Gentiles considered Jews obnoxious, sanctimonious, self-righteous, and uh, uh, hypocrites who believed that God loved only them and they wanted nothing to do with them. And, and besides, the Jews were always rebelling to get their own country back. The goal of the Jews was a country only for the Jews and to throw out anybody who would not support that goal. So here is the mystery described. It's put in one sentence in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, which we are hearing, the Gentiles are heirs together. An heir is someone who is in the family. This this means we've been adopted into God's family with the Jews. Heirs together with Israel, members together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It was Jesus who reveals that God has love for the Jews and the Gentiles and has a plan to bring them together into one new spiritual family that will share all of God's blessings that we were began to describe in chapter 1. So here's the, here's the truth. God will let anybody into his family. More than that, he wants everyone in his family. Now, uh, you may be surprised. I mean, of course, he, he struck it lucky when he invited you into his family and you, you know, he was really smart when he did that. But the people around you certainly wasn't thinking of them. He was. He was. And that's the mystery. He loves both. And God will let anybody in who places his or her trust in Christ. I know that's hard to fathom. Even today. Let me share why. About a decade ago, it was Easter time. And I invited two people I knew in the community to come and worship with us at Easter. And I do this every Easter, every Christmas. I, I just find it, you know, why not? It's the most open time that people that don't go to church might be willing to go to church. And for some reason, God was in this, I think, both came with their wives. And what I didn't know was that those two people not just knew me, but they knew each other in the community. So we go through a worship service together. It's a great time. I thank them for coming. And the following week, I get a call from each of them. I didn't know so-and-so was going to your church. I just listened. I didn't want to say, well, not really. They came Easter. Well, I didn't know so-and-so was going to your church. He really needs it. Next phone call, same message. He really needs it. God will let anybody in. Not just to church, but I mean God lets anybody into his family. And we have this idea that as we look around, just about everybody is worse than us. And God says, you know, I don't look at it that way. You've all fallen short of what I had planned for you and even what you have planned for yourself. We all 
really need it. The mystery of God's grace is not that the other guy needs it, but that God sends Jesus to each of us because each of us needs it and we can get it through Christ. So that's solving the mystery. Now, as we look out today, we're, we're pretty Anglo, aren't we? Uh, maybe a, a sprinkling of other nationalities. Any other Albanians? See? Well, God will let anybody in. Anybody. But, but, but even though we're fairly Anglo, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds. All sorts of different family lifestyles. All different types of education. All different types of careers. And it doesn't matter. It also doesn't matter about nationality. It also doesn't matter about uh, whatever political party you're rooting for this year. It also doesn't matter if you're an independent because you're mad at everybody. Okay? It doesn't matter. He lets everybody in. So that's the mystery. It's solved. We've been living it for 2,000 years. But now there's this next portion I call discovering the truth about grace. It's not the whole story. We brag on God because he's brought these two uh, nations or these two peoples together that we had no idea how it could ever happen. But the other side is we see that grace is a killer too. It just doesn't bring people in, but what God intends to do to us and through us through his grace. He wants to transform our lives, a a word we use around here a lot, but perhaps in the ways we weren't thinking or even dreaming about or desiring. God's grace makes us into a new person, but with it comes St. Paul's warning. Warning. This may be hazardous to your health. It may be hazardous because God may be killing things that you don't want killed. So he uses a checklist here, but again, the checklist is one of, this is what God has done to me. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen exactly the same to you, but God is going to be killing things in each and every believer. And this is what he has always intended to do, and it starts this way, because uh, <clears throat> this is the whole story. It starts with uh, the position you have. Let me just read some of these uh, issues that Paul shares as he goes through them. Uh, he says... Uh, that once the mystery is solved, and then he goes on to say, you know, making it plain to, to everyone, and then in ages past, his intent now was that the church and the manifold witness of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's, the, you know, everywhere and even into heaven, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, before that, he is giving his list of what God did in him. Because he uses the word for himself, servant. He says, I became a servant of this gospel. Now understand, Paul was not educated to be a servant. Paul was educated to be a leader. He was a Jewish Jewish scholar. He had uh, degrees that we would say similar were were from Harvard or or Stanford. Uh, He was a prominent rabbi who was on the way up. And now that he has come to Christ, instead of being a leader in the Jewish community, he is called uh, one who is a threat to the Jewish community. And he calls himself a servant to the gospel. Uh, he does not grow in stature anymore as a Jewish scholar. He's wanted dead or alive by the ones that he was hoping would come to, come to him 
to learn about Judaism. Uh, he wasn't impressive anymore. He was a threat. Friends, many of you are in a stage of life where you have planned out these are the future steps of my life. I see things on the increase, on the upstage. I, I see things swelling. I, I, I see my reputation growing. I see my, uh, my, my skills. I, I, I see my name becoming more prominent. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong without, with being out to expand or increase by the merits of what you've done in your life. But Paul calls himself now, even though he's never given up his education, never given up everything he's gone through, he says, now I'm a servant of the gospel. Your position changes from leader to servant. Warning. Grace kills your position. The next thing that it kills, Paul is talking about you know, mindset. He calls himself less than the least of all of God's people. Uh, you know what he's saying is that you're going to have a mindset of hu- of humility instead of vanity. And when he calls himself the less uh, of all of God's people, he could compare himself to the other apostles. He could say, "Well, compare me to Peter, and I'm not quite as good as Peter." Or compare me to uh, James and John. I'm not quite as good as them. But he says, no, I'm not quite as good as any other believer on earth. You see, as his picture gets bigger of who Jesus is, his estimation of who he is decreases. Same thing happened to John the Baptist. You know, the more he becomes clear on the majesty of Jesus, the less he's able to brag about himself. So warning. Following Jesus means you may have less to take pride in regarding your life and your accomplishments in your life. Warning. That's one of the side effects. The next side effect is he realizes that he has a new responsibility, the responsibility of sharing, because he says it is his job to make known to everyone the administration of this mystery. So this third thing, this third responsibility, because many say, I came to God because he offered me freedom. I would no longer be chained by my sin or, or whatever. And, 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 I'd, and, and maybe I'd even be able to do whatever I wanted to do on any given day. But what God does for Paul, he says, Paul, I have uniquely equipped you and positioned you to do what nobody else can do on this earth at this time. I have given you a Greek background and a Jewish background, and you've had the best of both. And I have nobody currently who is equipped as well as you to go to the Gentiles, to go to the Greek philosophers, to go to the Roman leaders, and to speak about Jesus in ways that they would understand. I want you to communicate Jesus Christ in a way that those Jews would not be able to do. And I want you to do it in a way in which the, the Greeks and the Romans would both understand and they'd be moved to follow Jesus. One of the key issues I think that each of us has in, in, in every one of our lives is to come to a conclusion of how has God equipped you and positioned you in life? What is it that he has specifically done for you, like Paul, not the same as Paul, but similar to Paul, that maybe he has not done to anyone else around you? What is it about you that God is shaping 
that God is building so that you can be like him, a person who lives in responsibility to God, knowing that you have certain things that you do better than others. Now, now listen, I mean, my example is this. In the last year of moving into this facility, uh, I've sat down and I've looked at all the things in this facility and, and moving in and, and, and everything with the building and contracting and, 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 and coming in here. And it's been amazing what God has done. But I've been able to list things where I can honestly say, don't do that well. Don't do that well. I really don't do that well. Can I give you a couple? Money. Nobody has asked me to handle the finances of this church. And everyone who does has probably said, amen, Jim. Okay. I'm not involved with the money at all except writing checks to the church and cashing checks from the church. Money. I'm not good at it. There's a lady sitting in here who's my teller who realizes whenever there's more than two checks together, she has to check my adding. I'm not good at it. Technology. <laughs> Most of you are laughing already. And you realize that all the software and everything else that's come in, uh, all, you know, all the things that even some of you are struggling with, I just raise up my hands and say, you take charge that is not something where it will take me five times longer if I am able to master it. And more than that, I, I probably would never be able to be good at it anyway. So others are taking charge. But in addition to what I can't do, I understand God has given me a responsibility of the things not only that I can do, but I'm really good at. You wanted to talk more about going deeper with God? Let's have lunch. Come on. I'd love to do that with you. Uh, you want to talk more about maybe uh, uh, what it means that uh, uh, we would grow closer to one another? Oh, come on. Let's get together. Let's do that. You want to talk more about reaching further into the community? These are the things that I love to do. And if you want to know more about that, I'm your man. And there's others with us. But I want to give you this warning. Grace does not mean freedom, but it means responsibility in the ways that God has personally equipped you. It's a killer. Warning. It's responsibility. Now this one, Paul does not state as an example, and it's really more positive than we thought, but when you look at it in terms of what we expect from God versus what God gives, maybe it is a killer. The fourth says, in, in, next to the last verse there, that we also have a new power of access to God, where it says we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's power. Because it, as he was writing to these Ephesian Christians, they were living in a world in which they would go and make sacrifices in the temple of Artemis, and, and as they made these gifts and sacrifices to her, what, what their expectation was is that because they've given to her she would give back to them reciprocity. And it would be, I bless you, you bless me, isn't life sweet? Therefore, if something goes wrong in my life, Artemis, it's your fault. But we all know, first of all, Artemis is a false god, and life doesn't work that way. So as Christians, uh, you know, it says they can approach and speak to God personally as they never have before. They can approach God and speak to God personally. 
Jesus has removed the barrier that's between us and God by taking away our sins, and we have a new access to God. What's the other side of that? The other side is simply this. God says, and I'm talking back. Yes, you can tell me all that you want. But if you're going to talk to me, I'm talking back to you. And I may tell you some things that you do not want to hear. I may give you a vision you do not want to accomplish. But you have to be sure of this, that what God wants for you is a beautiful thing and the best thing. So what is it about grace? Well, it seems to be that grace takes away the old things in our life, the things that should be killed, and it brings in what we would call the new things in our life. (laughs) But the old things really have to be done away with. Um, And God's grace, as it brings in the new, we find that the new can be quite costly. You know, much of humanity, as an example, spends a lot of time in this, what I call, self-advancement. We have celebrities who do nothing. We have reality shows that have no reality. But we know who's on them. We know who they are. We claw, we push, we scream. Lay, look at me. We want to be noticed and we want to be appreciated. We want to be admired. Hey, I succumb to that. I understand what that feeling is. I was third born. If I didn't reach for seconds first, there would be no food. If I didn't yell louder, no one would hear me. I know what it means to claw ahead. I was born into it. Look at me. And I still succumb to that often. So we have to understand that, you know, the old that he wants to get away with or do away with is what we call self-advancement. What God takes away or is that, that desire for self-advancement. That doesn't mean you don't get rewarded for merit, but he wants to take away that self-advancement desire in us. And, and, and that is basically saying, uh, I'm not really God, but God is God. So it doesn't mean you have to refuse promotions or pay raises. But what it does get at is that you want to advance God in your life. Warning. God's grace means you are no longer number one. God is number one. And he replaces it with a, with a life of what we call self-denial. Now, once again, this is dangerous. I'm, I'm dealing with uh, some similar concepts in popular psychology, accepted psychology, uh, that, that maybe uh, even some of you are struggling with. It doesn't mean hating yourself and everything about you. But it does mean that Jesus, what he said to his disciples, he's also saying to you. What do I mean? Jesus retreats with his disciples to a more lonely place. And it's way up at the headwaters of the Jordan River, north of the Sea of Galilee, a place where he hasn't gone before. And up there is this sort of resort city um, called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar and named after... uh, uh, a tetrarch or another ruler, and they put the two names together because they didn't want it to get mixed up with another Caesarea nearby. It's sort of a resort city, but it's also a Roman city. It has Roman temples everywhere. More than that, it has a temple uh, to Pan, who is sort of a god of mischief and a, and a god of wildlife and a god of uh, immoral sexuality, and, and, he, and, and he flaunts it, uh, this half-goat, half-man. And, and, and there's 
statues of the current Caesar everywhere that you're supposed to worship. And so Jesus is near there and they can see it and, and with his disciples and with all of this emperor worship and all this false worship of false gods, he asks this question to his disciples. He goes, who do men say that I am? And his disciples give answers. You know, some say you're John the Baptist, a prophet, or some, some you know, words like that. And Peter speaks up, and Peter says, um, you're the Christ, the Holy One of God. In other words, you're the real deal. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Jewish Messiah. And he, you know, says, thank you, Peter. God told you that. It wasn't from man. And then he says, now let me talk about being Messiah. It means I'm going to be killed and rise again. It means I'm going to be persecuted, executed by these powers that are right here in this city that you see. But it's not the end. I'm going to rise again. Peter speaks up, says, that's never going to happen to you, Jesus. That I, will, I will just never allow that. And he says, get behind me, Satan, because you were right and now you, could, now you are dead wrong. Dead wrong. All the Jews want is to destroy the Roman presence and restore the moral, God-fearing Israel to, its orig- to God's original intent. They want a Jewish state. And they, want, uh, and they think that this is what, why Jesus has come. Uh, and then he tells them, no, that's not why I come. I have a kingdom that's not of this world. So warning. God is doing something different than your expectations. Instead of great power and glory, where a whole nation will honor you, And Rome will fear you. Jesus tells you his grace will kill their expectations. His grace will kill it. Let me read from Mark here. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He's laying it very clear. Grace kills. Grace kills the inner person to make you more like God's person. To deny oneself means that God is God. He has the final say. He comes first and you come somewhere down on the list. He tells you and what to do and you don't tell him what to do. Your freedom and your autonomy, your aspirations, they may come true, but you know what? They're submitted first to God. When Jesus says words like these, some of his followers drop off or don't take him seriously. But those who continue to follow him are better equipped for heaven. So that when they get there, they've been already through this purifying process to become like Christ Jesus. So I have to ask, as followers of Jesus Christ, is his grace killing you yet? Have you ever come to these places where you say, God, stop it, it hurts. Not physical pain, but sort of ego pain. What I want for myself. Is God's grace killing you yet? Have you ever looked at God and said, you're killing me, Lord. 
I want to say this. He only kills what you can't take with you when you go to be with him. That's all he kills. And he only grows that which will last for eternity. And he does this so that the mystery of what we call the church, where all peoples can come together, that as as people look at the church, they will take notice of God. Not of us, but of God. So church warning. This thing that we call God's grace and God's church, they have harmful side effects to your life. So I'm just going to pray a one-word prayer. And you fill in the blank. Okay? Let's pray. Ouch. What is God wanting to kill in you? Ouch, Lord. What is it that he believes needs to be decreased, burned, put aside so that more of him can control all of you? It is this wonderful word we call lordship. And it redefines everything about us. Lord, we thank you now that it was your marvelous grace in Christ Jesus dying on his cross that saves us. And I think we all want to be growing into this where we say it's your marvelous grace through Jesus dying on his cross and rising again that also kills us that burns away everything that takes the focus away from you. Ouch, Lord, and a warning. Your grace will kill those things. And we as your people say, thank you. And all of God's people said, amen.